and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. This is a podcast in which we interview expert leaders around the country on best practices for healing our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. I want to extend a very, very warm welcome to Dr. Wendy Dean. Dr. Dean is a writer, speaker, podcast host, and president and co-founder of The Moral Injury of Healthcare, a nonprofit focused on alleviating distress in the workforce through training and consultation. She and her co-founder, Dr. Simon Talbot, began the conversation around moral injury in healthcare with the publication of their seminal work in Stat News on July 26, 2018. Prior to founding their nonprofit, Dr. Dean had been a practicing physician, worked for the Department of Defense as an executive for a large international nonprofit supporting military medical research. Dr. Dean's focus now is on finding innovative ways to make medicine better for both patients and physicians through her own nonprofit and by helping new talent and new ventures realize their big ideas. Well, welcome, Dr. Dean. And I forgot to ask, do you want me to address you as Dr. Dean or Wendy on the podcast? I think it's you introduced me as Dr. Dean. Wendy is fine. Okay, great. So Wendy, thanks for being here today. I'm so excited to to talk with you. We've had several really um, pivotal conversations leading up to this podcast. And I just am curious to hear a little bit more about your own background and your own experience with moral injury. Thanks so much. It is really great to be here. I appreciate your interest in the topic and in helping heal healthcare. Um, So my, I, I often say that I didn't volunteer for this work. I sort of was conscripted um, in that when I was, when I was practicing, in fact, back in training, um, I realized that what I wanted in healthcare or from healthcare and from my practice in healthcare was to be able to connect with patients and find the best way to work with their values to, to make them better. When I got out into practice, I quickly realized that what my patients needed wasn't always the first concern. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what the organization needed was the first concern. Sometimes what the insurer needed was the first concern. And I switched, I, I switched my business model repeatedly to try to find a place where it would work better. And I went from an academic practice practice to a private practice to a private practice in a different location. And in the end, I realized I had a choice between practicing in a way that I thought wasn't as good for patients as I hoped mm-hmm. or finding a way to practice or leaving medicine, honestly. Um, and I chose the latter because I couldn't live with that concept of I'm going to I'm going to make this practice sustainable for me and it will just have to be good enough for my patients. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
that was that was how I came to this challenge in healthcare from a clinician perspective. But I also came to it from a family member of a patient who struggled to get care. Oh, several, <laughs> actually. Okay. Um, you know, it was so I watched my mother struggle to get care in Florida. Mm. And my husband had a critical illness and we, we were challenged to find care for him as well. And I thought, wait a minute, these are two very different specialties who are addressing these patients' needs. Mm -hmm. They're thousands of miles apart. They're in different regions of the country. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel the same when I'm interacting with these clinicians. So, so what's going on here? And that was when I started doing this deep dive talking to all the clinicians I knew okay. and saying, what's going on with you? Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, it's interesting that you saw that pattern happening with, you know, both your mother and your husband. And I'm curious, were you, how did you navigate that when you were talking to the different clinicians? How, what, what did that do for you or what kind of answers did you come from that process? In the moment, when I talked to the clinicians, they were, um, they were sort of checked out. And when I asked them, when I, when I sort of probed a little bit, they got very defensive. Mm -hmm. So in the moment, there wasn't much I could do to shift the conversation, but four, six, eight months later, I started thinking, there's something that just doesn't add up. I, I'm not really sure what it is, but there's something that doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. And I started talking with the clinicians, the physicians that I was working with in, in my research job with the army and saying to them, here's what I noticed in my, in my husband's care, in my mother's care. It seemed like the clinicians were distant. I, they had no sense of urgency. Good enough was good enough. Mm -hmm. And these physicians said, you know, I'm struggling too. I love my patients. I love the medicine that I practice, but everything else, all of those processes and procedures and the things that get in the way between my patient and the care they need, mm -hmm. that's all grinding me down. Mm -hmm. And as I talked to more and more of them, and these are folks at big medical centers, they looked like they, they were incredibly successful on paper and they were still saying, it's hard for me to do my job. Yeah. And that, that's when I really said, okay, th there's something going on here. I'm, I'm hearing from, from orthopedists and plastic surgeons and ENTs and cardiologists and family practitioners. They're all having the same experience of healthcare. So it's not about them. It's about the system that they're in. Mm -hmm. So what is it about that system that causes so much challenge? And so how did that lead you to discovering the concept of moral injury in healthcare? Yeah, interesting. So, <laughs> so when I started looking into it, I thought, okay, everybody is kind of, they're challenged, they're exhausted, they're, dis they're depersonalized and checking out from their patients. That sounds like burnout, mm -hmm. right? So I started asking them that question. And I would say to these clinicians, so are you burned out? And it was amazing. This I wasn't talking to them in a group, so they weren't hearing each other answering me. 
And almost to a one, they would say the same thing. Something along the lines of, well, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't really land with me, but, but I don't have better language for it. So I guess so. And about a year later, after I had come around to this thought about moral injury, I would present that language to them and what it meant. And again, almost to a one, they would say, that's it. That's my experience. Now I have language for it. Okay. And can you, well, and I think we'll get, I really want to get into that later in the podcast. Yeah, there's, absolutely. There's a lot of meat to this discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, so you were, you stumbled upon this on your own through moral injury and you have a lot of experience in the military. And so I know that you told me a little bit about how, you know, the veterans experience moral injury and that, that concept struck you that struck you that it is actually happening in healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So to be clear, I never wore the uniform, um, <laughs> but I did work as a civilian in, in close connection with a lot of um, military folks and in their, um, in the invisible, looking at the invisible wounds of war as well. So mm -hmm. PTSD, moral injury, et cetera. And what I realized, so, so I, I had, I had been looking for a new way to frame this concept for many months. And there was one day I was in my garden doing some therapeutic weeding and I heard, I heard a, an article on NPR about drone pilots who were suffering moral injury. And number one, I heard this, you know, this was a new concept to me of moral injury, even though it had been around for a while. Um, and it, all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, if, if drone pilots who never see combat because they're they're flying from a base in Nevada. So they're never physically in combat. And yet, despite that, they're experiencing moral injury. Hmm. And if that can happen, could we apply it? Might it be appropriate to apply this somewhere else? And so I, I started going down this, this path of looking into moral injury and what it meant and and the more I looked, the more it seemed to apply. Mm. And again, you know, as I started doing the focus, the, the small informal, hey, what do you think? People started saying this, this really, this, this rests better with me. Mm -hmm. So the way we, in moral injury was first conceived by Jonathan Shea, when he was working with Vietnam veterans who had been exposed to actions that didn't, that, that disrupted their sense of themselves as morally good beings, you know, as morally good people. And what he defined it as was betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. And that was officers asking people to do things that they thought wasn't um wasn't okay wasn't accord uh, wasn't part of their code of military conduct um and later on 
Brett Litz and William Nash expanded that concept and said, it's more than betrayal. The betrayal leads to, or the, there's also this transgression of a deeply held moral belief or expectation. Mm-hmm. So when I started thinking about this in the context of healthcare, I immediately thought those deeply held beliefs are the oaths that we took to put our patients first, Mm -hmm. recognizing that not everybody takes an explicit oath, but through our, our education and training, it is driven home to us that our patients always come first, Mm -hmm. that we won't do harm and that our patients come first. And that is an implicit agreement that we make in entering this field. So whenever something comes between us and our patients, that feels like we're being asked to forsake that oath. When we have to take care of the EMR or make sure that we are billing appropriately, that feels like we're taking care of the organization, not taking care of our patient. Or being told that we have to admit patients to medicine when they don't meet criteria. <laughs> or yep, or being told or, that or, we can't refer outside of our own healthcare system exactly. because it will lead to leakage. Mm-hmm. Or being told that we have to stay on time with patients. And like as a psychiatrist, I've had patients that were actively suicidal and I was trying to navigate whether they needed hospital admission. And I was told, Your next patient's here, you need to move on. Well, I've got an acutely suicidal patient. Well, I'm sorry, but your time is over. You need to move on. So those are the kinds of things I think that happen for all of us. It doesn't matter what specialty you're in now in healthcare. Um, I wanted to kind of give a few examples, and I think it's helpful for audience to know how, like, can you explain a little bit more how moral injury um, works in healthcare versus the military and maybe give a few different examples? So I I think when we, when I think about, I've watched folks try to try to do sort of a one-on-one um, adaptation of mm-hmm. some of the concepts from the military to healthcare, and I appreciate why, but I also think we need to think about how healthcare is different from the military. Mm-hmm. And so, when we think about the military, we, they're both professions, right? And so, when we get down to what is the obligation of a profession in society? That's really where the differences start. The military has an obligation to protect. Sometimes that means, you know, at the extreme of that, there's a requirement, there may be a requirement for lethal force, the use of lethal force. So inherent in that agreement to join the military is the potential for moral injury. Mm-hmm right? Because most of us aren't, don't grow up believing that it's okay to kill anyone. In healthcare though, our obligation to society is to heal. And nowhere in there is that, is there an inherent slide into a morally injurious way of acting, Mm -hmm. right? Unless we have constrained resources as we had in COVID um, but that's another question. And there are there are so many ways that we have put in safeguards to try to protect in that situation, but it's not akin to the lethal force argument. Mm-hmm. So my belief is whenever we have a potentially morally injurious event or experience, 
it's a trigger. It, it should be a, a signal to us or a trigger that we should look deeper because it shouldn't happen in healthcare, right? That is a flag that something that we're doing is not in alignment with patient needs and with, with the promises that physicians have made. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it seems like there are many different aspects of healthcare that have drivers that lead to moral injury. And I know we've talked some about the concept of burnout and um, in the conversations that you and I have been having, you believe that moral injury is separate from burnout and that, you know, burnout in the burnout community, we talk about how moral injury is actually a manifestation of burnout, right? And there are multiple things like breakdown of community, breakdown of trust and psychological safety that lead to moral injury. Um, But you have a little bit different perspective on moral injury, and I would love to um, dive a little bit more deeply into that. Yeah. So, and I appreciate, I appreciate that there are different perspectives on this. I think there's plenty of distress to go around. So none of us needs to have a corner on the market, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, Definitely and my goal, <laughs> right? And my oh. goal, if I could, like my ultimate goal is to work myself out of a job. I would love to no longer have to mm-hmm. talk about this because it didn't exist. Yeah, so, right. you know, I, I think that the more we allow the definitions to creep, the harder it is to know how to create appropriate solutions to that thing, Mm. right? Because then it becomes amorphous and it gets very hard to nail down what the, what the appropriate solutions are. Mm. So this is not to say that I think burnout doesn't exist. I for sure think it exists. The work that we're doing with a collaborator in the UK, St. Andrews Healthcare Mm -hmm. is beginning to show evidence that moral injury is a distinct entity from burnout. They may coexist together. They may occur separately. They may coexist together and they may influence each other. And the easiest way to think about the distinction between the two is that burnout happens, at least if you if you define it more narrowly rather than as a as a transdiagnostic category with symptoms that cross many different categories if you define it clearly it becomes the demand resource mismatch of operational challenges in healthcare of which there are plenty mm-hmm. right so if we if we put burnout in that category, then moral injury more covers the relational aspects of healthcare that are challenged. I see. And that goes back to that issue of betrayal, right? Betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high stick situation. When you're asked to do things that go against the obligation you feel, your professional obligation to your patients as a result of your professional role, mm-hmm. that is that's where moral injury comes in. So we have operational challenges on one side, relational challenges on the other. If we address either one, we'll make some improvement, but we won't fix the whole thing. We need to address both. It's yes and not either or. Okay, thank you, Wendy. That that was very well put. And 
I think that that explanation helps me understand how they interplay and interconnect, but how they're still separate entities. And um, I'm curious to see your perspective on solutions because my sense is, you know, solutions for healing burnout or for healing burnout and then solutions for healing moral injury probably also have some overlap. Um, I'm curious to know your perspective on that. Yeah, so, so um, I'm just going to go back to the previous question for one second. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, because the, the work that we're seeing in the UK is also showing us that um, a couple of things. One is that administrators suffer moral injury as well. So it's not just a clinical problem, but the other is that burnout and moral injury can influence each other. So it's, it's not just a one-way street, right? If you're, if you are, so for example, if you are speaking up about some of the trans transactional issues, the operational issues that are interfering with your ability to do your job and they're being ignored that can feel like a betrayal mm -hmm. that can be moral injury mm -hmm. um it can also just be flat out burnout because you recognize and your administrators have very clearly stated to you that we would love to be able to do that thing but here's our here are our constraints we can't do it and so it just becomes a matter of okay i get it I'm exhausted. It's, it, it is asking me to do more than I probably could do, but I don't feel that sense of relational rupture. Right. So it, it they can, they can, they can influence each other looking to solutions. Um, I think as we talk about operational issues, reducing administrative burden, reducing, um, you know, creating a better user interface for the EMR um, reducing the number of regulations and requirements for payers, getting rid of prior authorization, all of those things would be incredibly helpful. They fall on the operational side. There's plenty of work to do there. We also, um, if we look at the relational piece, particularly coming out of COVID, there's a lot of repair that needs to happen. Clinicians who went to work when there was not enough PPE, who reused their N95s, who did that while their pay was cut, their retirement benefits suspended, um, where they were furloughed, they saw their friends getting fired. There's a lot of relational repair to do there. And organizations that think, you know, it's that if we can, <laughs> organizations that want to just jump right back into business as usual, because that's comfortable and it's what we know, and it is, it is reparative for their finances, are underestimating the impact of what clinicians have been through. Mm -hmm. I think if we go back and start to really do that repair work, giving people time to breathe, giving people um, a forum to express what they experienced and what they need coming out of it mm -hmm. and how they want to see healthcare going forward, what they need for this to be a sustainable career now. And I'm not saying that that's just money. 
when we when you ask clinicians, money is way down the list, actually. Mm-hmm. It's more autonomy, it's more regulation, it's more, you know, free me up to take care of my patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So allowing clinicians to come to the table where the decisions are made and to have input into what happens in their workspace is going to be critical. When they give feedback, seeing that it gets acted on is critical. Having their having their organizations put their weight behind actions that could help the workforce is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, are you seeing any organizations addressing this right now? The repair, the relational repair work. So there are some who are doing some things. I will say that the workforce is skeptical. Mm-hmm. So there are organizations that are doing um, appreciation. You know, they're focusing on let's make sure that we're that health workers feel appreciated. And well, the feedback that I'm getting is that it feels um, performative. Interesting. Well, I mean, that's understandable because they're not really addressing the root cause. You know, appreciation is, is very important, you know, but if somebody is telling me they appreciate me being at work today, but I'm still having to tell my patient that the treatment I want to give them isn't covered or we don't have, they, I can't get them in head MRI for a month. There's nothing I can do about it. Like that's still the root cause. And so I could see how addressing just the appreciation factor would would actually probably induce more harm than good at this point, unless you're addressing some of the other factors on the front line. Right. And, and that's what I worry about. I, I often worry that the, with the size of our systems now, mm-hmm. the time between when somebody gives feedback and when it may be acted on can be months. Mm-hmm. And, or it may not even, the, the loop may not even get closed. Mm-hmm. So they give the feedback, something happens about it, but they never know because it happened so long ago and it just feels like, you know, mm-hmm. yet again. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to feedback anymore because it's exhausting to me. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really, it's important to close that loop and, and to let clinicians know this is what we're doing based on your feedback. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, Wendy, I, I really appreciate all the work that you and Dr. Simon Talbot through your foundation are doing to try to bring awareness to moral injury. And I know, um, I do want to make sure that we cover your book. So um, they just published a book. It's launching today and it's called If I Betray These Words. And I was lucky enough to get a copy ahead of time to read for today. So thank you. Um, it's it's really poignant storytelling and giving us information on how the different physicians and clinicians are navigating the drivers of moral injury. But Wendy, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the book and maybe your process in writing this? Sure. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, as with this whole movement, writing a book was never on my bucket list. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. It's a lot but, of work. <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, and it was a lot of attention and focus, which whew, yeah. is a struggle. 
Um, but but I will say so so um, the reason we wrote it was because we got a lot of push from a lot of people to say this is this is something people need to know about. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was really the motivation behind it. And in fact, um, I'll give props here to Sam Shem, who um, the the author of House of God, who was probably the biggest prod, because we had dinner with him one night, and he said, "You need to write a book." And I said, "Absolutely not. <laughs> I do not need to write a book." <laughs> and over the next, I don't know, probably six months, he was like a dog with a bone. He would not let it go. And so thanks to Shem, we find we, we persisted. Um, but it was, it was, um, it was a humbling experience. It was an exhausting experience and I could not imagine doing it with better publisher. Mm -hmm. Um, Steerforth press really saw, had a vision for this work and, um, was the best partner you could imagine for an, for an organization. Um, and, and I thought about this a lot as I was going through it is if physicians could work with an organization like Steerforth press, we would have much better healthcare. So, um, Chip Fleischer, who is the publisher and who I, who bought the work said, you know what? Um, I see the vision for this. It is a message that needs to get out but you're going to need help doing it. Mm. And here's the help you'll need because I'm an expert in publishing. I know what writers need. You know, I can identify what a particular writer might need and I'm going to provide it for you. And so, um, it it was, it was incredibly helpful. It was exhausting. It was, it was 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week for 18 months. Um, Wow. Yep. Yeah. That, and it was, intense. sorry. And, and well, that, that is intense. And yet even, I mean, as I'm reading these stories, um, you know, they're, they're very emotional, they're heart wrenching, but so educational because I learned so much and, and you really, I think researched well, the healthcare organizations and the systems and what's been happening behind the scenes that us physicians aren't even aware of. And, and clinicians. And so it's really helped, like you pro- provide like a, I would just call it like a 360 perspective on one story, what's happening. So you have the physician's perspective of, you know, why they're burning out and they're experiencing moral injury at the same time. And then what's happening behind the scenes with the hospital and the administrative staff. So. Yeah. And I, I wanted this to be, I wanted people to not know just what was happening, but why is it happening? Why did we, how did we get here? Because I'm a firm believer that if we built it, we can renovate it, right? Like that. Yes. And, yeah. and so let's not be hopeless about it. Let's understand the path that we took to get here. And then we can retrace steps and rethink the process, mm-hmm. right? So for example, um, CMS has decided that Back in 2017, actually, they decided that they were going to try to harmonize some of their regulations, and they actually have been able to reduce the number of regulations that they require. It's still a, it's still hundreds. It's like 417, but it's less, right? Um, and I and I wanted not only 
physicians and other clinicians to know, but I also wanted patients to know. And I wrote it in a style that I thought would be accessible for everyone mm -hmm. where they could see themselves in it. Whether you're a clinician or a patient, you're going to see yourself mm -hmm. um, or you're going to see your colleagues or you're going to see your family members. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a way that, that really, it really lands for people when they see that. It does. And even as a healthcare executive and leader, I know that it helped me feel validated from an even administrative standpoint, what was happening behind the scenes with the payer system and everything, especially during the pandemic. And really, you know, because I know that administrators also experience moral injury and we have a high, high turnover rate too with our leaders. So um, I think it, your book speaks to, you know, all aspect, all of the different, um, key stakeholders in healthcare. Yeah. 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 Um, what I also really liked was, you know, as we get, you know, the first half of the book is more about the struggle and what's happening behind the scenes. And then the, the second part of the book goes into how each physician was able to sort of reinvent in their situation, advocate for themselves. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect and how that was for you writing that and any ideas that you came up with for solutions based on that? So um, I will say I was really looking forward to getting to chapter seven, eight, nine, <laughs> because the first half of the book is rough. It was, it, there was a lot, there was a lot of trauma mm -hmm. and it was a lot of trauma to carry. Um, and I will say that the even even chapters, the chapters after chapter six, as much as they are hopeful, they were still a challenge because people went through rough things. Mm -hmm. um, but we definitely got to see, you know, I started seeing patterns. And the patterns were people who didn't have as much debt. So if we can help educate college students about how they decide to fund their education, we may be better off. Folks who had been through the military were more represented in those latter chapters and in, and in the places where I feel like people have been able to identify and mitigate their risk of moral injury, partly because they learn very early that it's necessary to understand policies and regulations, to read the letter of the law and understand it not always because you need to follow it, which we do, mm -hmm. but to understand where it's being pushed beyond what it was meant to do. So being able to use that policy leverage to your advantage and, and to shift systems to better care for patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then leadership. Leadership styles matter, being present matters a lot showing up being curious asking questions mm -hmm. all matter mm -hmm. and holding our leaders accountable also matters and, and I'm I, on that <laughs> sorry i said i'm with you on that accountability yeah. is one of the things we keep talking about as a group um how you know we just haven't had accountability for employee well-being in healthcare ever and right. it's time to figure out a way to have accountability 
And I think we're all trying to navigate that process. <laughs> it's a big one, but it's necessary for us to heal and move forward. But I love what you said. If we built it, we can renovate it. For sure. For and sure. And, and I think we all look at it and say, oh my gosh, it's this giant, amorphous, incredibly complex system. That's all true. Mm -hmm. But if we each pick a thing that we're passionate about and start a start working on that, we can make changes. Mm -hmm. So for example, right now, there is, um, there's a rule that's open for public comment with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission about, about um, non-compete clauses. Mm -hmm. So people can go and make public comments on the FTC website and say, I don't want my doctor to have a non-compete clause because I want them to be able to stay in my community. Mm. I don't want them to have to uproot their family to go find a better job that doesn't, doesn't grind them into dust. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, well, so Wendy, I know we've, we've talked about a lot today and I think you've really helped me understand and better clarify the concept of moral injury and how this is a separate entity and yet interconnected with burnout. Is there, you know, is there anything else that you, a message that you want to leave with our audience today or anything else that I didn't ask or touch on? Such a great psychiatrist question. <laughs> I ask that all the time. Um, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I really do believe that the way that we get to better is by doing things together, by opening the circle and letting more people come in and comment. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one reason that it's hard for leadership to do that is because they, they feel a very heavy responsibility for knowing how to, how to manage this better. Mm -hmm. Right. But especially post COVID in a post COVID world, we've none of us has ever been here before. So we shouldn't expect anyone to know what it should look like. Mm -hmm. We should be asking everyone, what do you need? What do you need in the wake of this? of this event? How do we get to better together? So leaders really being more open-minded, curious, asking for feedback from everyone and creating a platform to receive that feedback and then give updates on what's happening, I think is important. Absolutely. Keep Curiosity, going, yeah. being present, being curious, being transparent mm -hmm. and communicate, communicate, communicate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's great, Wendy. Thank you so much for everything you, you've talked about today and opening up your own heart and being vulnerable with us today and sharing your own experiences. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to expand this community and build this community with you. Um, I think this is a very powerful message and I hope anyone listening today, it doesn't matter what role you play, uh, we are all patients. We are all healthcare stakeholders. Um, I urge you to please visit Wendy's website, um, check out her book, and she's got it in the background too, but if I betray <laughs> these words, it really helps understand, again, how we got here, and there are lots of solutions in there as well on what direction we can take, even as patients, what we can do to try to help um, move healthcare in a positive direction, so... Um, Wendy, thank you so much for being here today and congratulations to both you and Dr. Talbot on launching your new book today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure.
All right, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you soon.